The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. To feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy. Welcome, Murder Bookies. This is my special episode speaking with the author of She Married the Green River Killer, Penny Wood. I hope you have listened to this trilogy, episodes 59, 60, and 61, The Medieval Era, The Dark Ages, and Rebirth, Her Renaissance. So there's no spoilers here. It is a profound story of Judith, who married serial killer Gary Ridgway, and the aftermath that followed once he's arrested for the murders of 48 women. We find out how Judith got to this place, and then gain insight into how a serial killer lives in his normal daily life, a life that has dire consequences. Now, Penny Wood. She was born in Spokane in Washington State and raised in the Seattle area. One of four children... Penny married and went on to raise a family while working in human resources management in the medical dental field. Her fascination with people and the amazing experiences that they have inspired her to write with her so appreciative of the opportunity to give voice to those without one, and I completely support that sentiment. The first edition of She Married the Green River Killer came out in 2007. I've been doing the second edition that came out in 2021. And I'm very grateful that she's here to speak with me about her book. Let me welcome Penny Wood to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. Hi, I can hear you. Hi. So nice after all the emails. It's very nice to meet you. Thank you for your interest in this story. I told you I wanted to do a book that would reflect the perpetrator's family's struggle. Mm-hmm. People are vicious, especially on social media these days, and they go after the family. Brian Kohlberger's family, he's the one that is uh, allegedly the killer in the Idaho murders. Right. His yeah. sisters have lost their job. I saw that on the news. So I'm I'm looking for a vehicle for this because this has bothered me for a while. And there's your book. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is perfect. How did you find it? I'm on several lists. See what's been released. I had seen it, I think, when it first came out, and this hadn't occurred to me yet. But then I circled back, and and obviously, the Green River Killer is a huge case. I wound up reading this with my real life book club. That I've been doing for years. This I've been doing for the last few. And everybody loved the book. Well, I'd like to do this. (laughs) So let me reach out to Penny and, uh, you know, see if you were, you know, willing to chat. Because I really do like to have the authors on. Listen, I would have loved to have had Judith on, but I just feel very protective of her. I guess from reading the book, it's not like I'd know this woman, but I feel like I do. And the last thing I wanted to do was just bring this all up again. I just didn't want to do it to her. Mm -mm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that sensitivity. She is way past telling her story. She's told it so many times now that, you know, she said she's just done. And she wants the rest of the years that she has left in in as much a peace as as she possibly can. 
she talks about it, even with me, it triggers nightmares and uh, another cycle of the anxiety and post-traumatic symptoms. That's what I figured. Everybody has suffered something, but what she went through, it's it's just, it it is really mind-blowing. And even in interviews I've seen on TV programs, she still looks shell-shocked when she's talking about it again. Yeah, you're right. I think I know enough about human behavior, and I just said, no, I'm not going to even think about doing that. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. why that's why it didn't come up, in case you wondered in our conversation. It might have been a boon for the podcast, but I'm not that podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Other people can try that stuff. It's I'm just not interested in, in that. I'm really trying to teach something positive, even as I'm going through, you know, horrible, true crime. If for me anyway, it's hopefully telling the story and bringing awareness to people and just hopefully raising that sensitivity chip, turn it up a couple notches. I appreciate that very much. That we've yeah. had plenty of people try to exploit Judith. I started out as just sort of getting to know her. We can talk later about the serendipity that brought us together, but tell me the serendipity that brought you together. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh very good. So, yeah, I could go way off into the weeds with this, but I can't not believe in serendipity because it's happened to me so many times in my life. I must pay attention to it. Uh, So this was when my son was young. He was a motocross racer, a dirt bike racer uh, from age 7 to 19. We drove him around the country in our RV and followed, you know, the series of motorcycle races. It's very similar to NASCAR in that there are accumulated points throughout the season. And at the end of the season, there's a champion. So we lived in our RV on the weekends at the racetrack. And at one track, this happened to be a practice day, no racing, just practice. I witnessed a teenager take a terrible crash on his motorcycle. He broke his femur way up high. It was punched out the backside of his leg. And I quickly realized that he didn't have parents or any family with him. He was alone at the track, which is really a no-no. It's not safe. So I ended up going to the hospital with him and staying with the boy and trying to comfort him until we could get some family there. It took forever, but finally his grandmother and grandfather walked in the hospital and introduced themselves, told me that they were raising him and thanked me profusely for being there with him. And I thought that was wonderful. And what I didn't know at that time is that grandma and grandpa were Jim and Linda Bailey, the best friends of Judith and Gary. They were in the book. The two men worked together at the Kenworth truck factory The two couples did everything together. They went out to dinner. They went on vacations together. Coco's restaurant. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And I didn't know that at the time. So Mm. time goes by. We go to race, 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 race. And at one race, Jim Bailey walked up to me and said, hey, uh, uh, could I speak with you in private? Could we go inside your RV? I need to tell you something. Okay. Invited him in. And he explained to me, uh, he said, you know, you've seen in the news probably that Gary Ridgway was arrested. They they think he's the Green River Killer. I said, oh, yeah, it's been all over the news. It's the biggest story here in the Seattle area. 
really in probably decades. And he said, well, he's my best friend and I work with him. And, you know, this is BS. Uh, They got the wrong guy. It's not him. I know this man. He's my best friend. I've worked with him. And I'm so upset. I'm just beside myself. And I said, well, gosh, I'm I'm just so sorry to hear that. I had no idea. Of course, I was trembling uh, to find out this alleged serial killer that we've been searching for for over 20 years in the Seattle area had been captured and that was allegedly him. And that he's the best friend of this man that we know from the racetrack. And his best friend is saying, this isn't the guy. They've got the wrong guy. That had to give you a moment's pause. Yes. Yes. It, it, was, uh, it was just riveting. Well, so, if it's not Gary Ridgway, it's uh, somebody oh. else who might still be out there then. That would have right. been, ooh. Yeah. Scary moment. We knew there had been a Green River killer task force that had been in place. It was controversial. A lot of tax dollars were spent and the public was becoming annoyed that the killer hadn't been found yet, despite the task force and all of the millions of dollars spent. And we knew from reports that they had a long list of suspects. And at one time there was a taxi driver they were quite interested in. So it was plausible to me that they got the wrong guy. And so Jim Bailey was just expecting, he was basically venting to me. This just just pisses me off. They got the wrong guy. He's my best friend. And I vouch for him. Okay, Jim. I'm just, man, this is, ooh. So more time went by. I saw them at another race. And this time Jim came into my RV and said, hey, Linda and I are really concerned about Judith, his wife. She's just spiraling downhill. She's depressed. She's traumatized. She's hiding. She's changed her name. She's changed the color of her hair. She's taking pills. She's drinking. We're just so worried about her. We just don't know what to do. Would you like to come meet her? And again, I'm just stuck. Why? Why would they ask me to come and meet this woman who's in hiding? And they said they just trusted me and liked me and felt that I was sort of guardian angel because of what I had done for their grandson by going to the hospital with him. And, you know, I'm a really, I read a lot and I'm a really curious person. So kind of selfishly, I said, okay, I'll meet her. I knew that she was in hiding. I knew that she was scared out of her mind because they told me that she thought the public might want to come and kill her because of what her husband had done and that they might judge her as guilty by association, like the Idaho alleged killer that you were just talking about. Like Mm -hmm. she, she thought that maybe some of the families of the victims might want to come and kill her. So on top of being traumatized, depressed, terrified, she was concerned for her life and her safety. So I went, Jim and Linda Bailey set up a meeting for us at a restaurant. I, I believe it was Applebee's. And so we went together and we met Judith. And I can tell you, Jill, I've never seen such a traumatized woman in my life. The pain in her eyes just shook me to the core. I I was, I really didn't know what to say or do. I just looked at her. She was trembling. She was crying. She was, she was picking at the palm of her hand. She was picking chunks of flesh and she had bloody scabs all over both of the palms of her hands. And I recognized that this woman was in a severe state of trauma. 
I was so upset I had to get up and leave the table, go to the restroom to compose myself. Yeah, pull yourself together. Pull myself together and think, why am I here? What can I possibly do to help this woman? So I started thinking, okay, I'm an action plan person. I need to talk to Jim and Linda. Does she have a counselor? Is she seeing a doctor? Is she getting maybe some kind of medication? So I started putting this action plan together in my head. Well, here comes Judith. She followed me into the bathroom, threw herself into my arms, grabbed onto me like a, like a life jacket, and just started sobbing into my chest. She's very short. She's about five foot tall. I just started sobbing into my chest. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm patting her on the back. I don't know what to do or what to say. And she just looked at me and she said, Penny, I feel as though I can trust you. I feel as though you're a good person. And I said, well, thank you. It's very nice to meet you. I'm honored to meet you. I'm so sorry for what you're going through. You must be so scared. And that went on and on. We ended the meeting. As time went by, Jim and Linda Bailey continued to be afraid for her, for her safety, living alone, drinking alcohol, taking pills. She took a fall one time down the stairs. I remember and, that. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, you read that in the book. Okay. Oh, yeah. So uh, finally, Linda said, well, let's, let's just start visiting her. Let's just check in on her. And I said, okay, that's fine. At that time, I had a day job and I was working four days a week. So on my one day off during the week, we would go visit. Uh, Judith together. Sometimes I would go alone. Sometimes we go together and just, just let her talk, just let her vent. And sometimes Judith would just cry. Sometimes her throat would kind of seize up like, like she couldn't get the words out. And then she started just kind of talking. And it's like everything needed to come out, talking about her life with Gary. At this time, he had already confessed. So, so we knew, yeah. knew that he had done it because we saw him on live television confessing. So at this point, she knew that her husband was gone and not coming back. And, and she started talking about her marriage. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is like a movie. How many people have been married to a serial killer? Seriously. And then when she started talking about her first marriage, I thought, whoa, that wow, this poor woman, she's been through so much. And then when she started talking about her childhood, I thought, okay, Judith, would you ever consider having someone write this story? And I was not thinking of myself. And I said, this is a story that I think people need to hear, not only from, you know, from the perspective, the bird's eye view of a serial killer, living with him, sleeping with him, but just so that the public could know you so maybe you wouldn't be so afraid that they're going to come that, you know, that you really didn't have a part of this. You didn't cover up for him. You really had no idea. And she said, yeah, I think that might help me to get my story out. So <laughs> I'm sorry, this was such a long answer. It's fascinating. Go. I went and found her a professional author at the University of Washington. <laughs> I sought her out and I said, hey, I've got this great story. Would you like to write this woman's biography? And she said, yeah together a meeting, professional author, myself, Judith met. And Judith told me, I don't like her. I want you to write my story, Penny. <laughs> I said, oh, sure. Okay. And at that time, we were still traveling with my son in motocross, you know, raising a family and me working. And, and I said, well, okay, I could try. And that's how it began. You tried really well. 
Thank you. I know you said this was just kismet and happenstance and serendipity, but I agree with you. Sometimes connections are made between people for a greater purpose. And I think you tremendously helped her, her mental health and physical health by just having a place to put that and knowing she was putting it into safe hands. That's how she seemed to perceive it. And it did later after the book was finished and out there. She told me, she said, Penny, it's like there was a poison in me and you pulled that poison out of me. And it wasn't easy. I met her in top secret for two years because it was such a slow process. Some meetings were a no-go. She would just have a panic attack or cry or her throat would close up and she couldn't talk. We just, okay, that's it. That's all for today. And other days, it just all came out. So I tape recorded all of our sessions. And then went home and listened to the tapes and transcribed them into notes. And then from the notes, then I would start the writing. So it was a really long process. I think it's incredible. I think you're spot on when you're saying it's something that was meant to be. Serendipity. People use that term loosely, but I I believe in it. It's happened multiple times in my life. And now, now I really pay attention that, okay, this person has been placed in front of me for a reason. And I need to be open. Once you've had an experience like that, when you can help in that kind of way, it changes your outlook forever. Yes, because remember, I was asking myself, why is Jim Bailey coming into my RV to tell me all of this? And his friend has been arrested, suspected of serial killers. And then weeks later, why is he inviting me to go meet the alleged serial killer's wife? Why? Why me? And then when she followed me into the bathroom and threw herself into my arms, where do I fit into all of this? Well, you were the one that could sensitively take her story, put together, because I'm sure there were ramblings and emotion and you know sadness and venting and sure happy times too, which makes those happy times even more bitter because, you know, she had to have asked, is this, was it all, was it real? You know, yeah. was she just a facade so that he could keep doing what? I mean, she had to doubt everything. I had to. Yep. What a story. The woman broke, she broke my heart, what she suffered through. And I don't think people have any concept. People go through all kinds of tragedies, but this hits her at every level. Mm-hmm. They were together for what, married 14 years, together three before they got married? Oh, I wanted to mention that. It's a profound paragraph in the book where she talks about, I dated Lee for three months before we got married. I lived with Gary for three years. I was smart. I got it right this time. Yes. Yes, you're right. So confident in that, that, yep, I I got it. I did this right. Not making those mistakes. I've learned. Yes. Yes. Judith did her due diligence and... She believed that it was a mistake to marry Lee so quickly after a three-month courtship. And, you know, by golly, she told herself, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And she dated and lived with Gary for three whole years. And the whole time, she told me, she was comparing and contrasting the differences. Even though you and I know there are remarkable, a remarkable list of similarities between the two ex-husbands. But in Judith's mind, she spent those three years watching Gary like a hawk. 
comparing and contrasting the differences between Gary and Lee. And what she concluded was that compared to Lee, the first husband, Gary Ridgway was just so normal. He was a blue collar, all American boy who had a steady job, a union yes. member, owned a home. And, but what really impressed her is that he had a, an intact family. He had a mother, a father, and two brothers. Mm -hmm. They were within a framework of a happy, normal family. Judith saw them in that framework. They mm -hmm. had holidays together. They had dinners, birthdays. And Judith thought, okay, ka-ching. I did it. I found someone who's normal, and I'm about to have a normal life. First time ever. Yep. And she was so proud of herself that she just took all of this information, all this data in. In hindsight, knowing he's a serial killer, it's easy to kind of look back. And I saw the parallels. I mean, Lee is, you know, going out to the union meetings when he's really meeting his boyfriends. Yes. Gary is sneaking out to see prostitutes and sex workers. Lee at least told her that. He did. Okay, this is not what she wanted, but she had small children and everything else, all the considerations that come into play. You know, with Gary... She trusted him. He was faithful. He was a wonderful husband. What worked against her, I think, was they did have such a good history. Yes. Did treat her well. Where the first husband, Lee, had been overly controlling, verbally abusive, abusive to her sensitivities in general, abusive to her children, and treating mm -hmm. her more like a, a housekeeper, you know, inspecting her house cleaning work and having such high expectations. Where Gary was more of a normal, loving spouse, he did not abuse her. He did not speak to her in a condescending way. They had a mutually uh, friendly and respectful relationship, she believed. In, in other words, Gary didn't demonstrate some of the more ugly characteristics that, that Lee did, even though the two ex-husbands had a lot, a lot in common. Not to disparage Lee. You know, he yes. is no serial killer. He had his quirks. He had his downside. Gary's murdering people. Yes. But to Judith, he was, he was good to her. Judith, the serial killer husband, was better than the bisexual husband. Yeah. Who did not kill people. For her. For her that's what I mean. Try wrapping your mind around that one. Yeah. And then you're supposed to just condemn this man and go on and, oh, throw it off like it's nothing. Well, it wasn't nothing. It was huge. I think we all tend to look at people that we love in, in a best light. And I think she did do that. You pointed out a few times in the book where she's thinking Gary's popular and respected at work. And then Jim Bailey's talking about wrong way, Ridgeway. So I think her love masked the way she perceived him, which that's true of everybody. It's no great insight. But I think that contributed to how she thought the rest of the world perceived him, too. I agree with you. Gary represented the first time that Judith was living a normal life. She craved normal like you wouldn't believe. She ached for it. She, wanted, yeah. she had never felt normal as a child. She did not have a normal childhood. Her yeah. teenage years were anything but normal. Her first marriage was not normal. And this massive irony of thinking that she finally hit the jackpot and had a normal husband and a normal life, 
only to find out that he's a serial killer. Really? You don't know what to do with that? Oh, holy mackerel. Again, you talk about how when they, of course, they talked before they got married, but afterwards, how the conversation got so much deeper, where he talks about his father having an illegitimate child, that he fathered a child in Vietnam. I mean, they're getting into the deep areas here where they're talking and sharing. Why would you think that there's something behind that door? You know, why would you even know there's another door that's locked shut there? You'd think all of it's coming out. Right. From Judah's point of view, she has this man who's quiet and normally very composed, actually opening up to her and telling her kind of his secrets and some of the skeletons in the family closet. And that made Judith feel wonderful. He trusted her. She was a confidant. They, um, they were partners. I wasn't able to go verify with separate sources the things that she told me. I had to take her at her word, the things that she told me. She had a great memory and things that Gary had shared with her. I think that's exactly right. They trusted each other. Now, he pled to now 49 cases where he murdered. We suspect there's a, a lot more. Today, there's 49 official cases. I think you wrote that eight took place during the Judith years. Do you think that trust, do you think that orbit of domestic tranquility influenced him? I mean, he was killing constantly, constantly. And then it tapers off. I'm trying to figure that out. Do you think it was the the Judith effect? I had the same question uh, that you just presented. You know, I, I interviewed Gary in prison and I asked him that same question. And he said, yes, he said the married years with Judith, that that was the kind of wife that he always wanted, that she was good to him and she didn't give him any problems. And he said that he loved her and that those were the happiest years of, of his life. His kill frequency went down indeed, but he wasn't able to completely stop. And so when I asked him about that, he told me, he said, well, he was very casual about it. And he said, well, you know, it's kind of like being addicted to beer, you know, like when you're an alcoholic, you just can't quite stop all the way. And he said, you know, almost like a victim. He said, you know, there, there weren't any uh, support groups out there for me. There was nobody to help me, you know, and I wanted to stop. But, you know, I'm like a person who is addicted to beer. And, you know, he said there's kind of a thrill in it. But, yeah, I was very happy. Very happy being married to Judith. I, I, I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. Okay. That's what his answer was. He ticked me off at times reading the book when he wanted Judith to find out, did he get a thank you letter from Kenworth Trucking? And I'm like, man, you've just embarrassed the heck out of this company who hired the serial killer for 32 years. And you... You, you've confessed to, you want a thank you letter? <laughs> it's, it's absurd. That's absurd. Honestly, I was, <laughs> my God, it's like, talk about tone deaf. But, you know, in his mind, he was such a good worker. Yes. Never took a day off, was never late, took all the overtime, was stealing things out of lockers, which you write about, which again, Judah thinks he's doing, oh gosh, he's, he manipulated her. It's almost like he's a serial killer or something. No, he did. He manipulated her 
that I'm working overtime and helping out. So-and-so's left the company and I'm cleaning out the lockers and I'm stealing all this stuff and bringing it home for their garage sales. Yes. Yes, because they were obsessed with turning a profit on selling items at their garage sales. And they were both on the same page with that. So they were highly compatible. Uh, I was fascinated with their compatibility. You know, you look at any marriage relationship, we're not all 100% compatible for sure. But these two were compatible, you know, in their work ethic, sexually compatible, that's for sure. He had such a strong sex drive and she just went right along with it and had no problem with it thinking that he desired her and loved her so much. If you had been married to a bisexual man who's in the down hall bedroom with the boyfriend and you're not really having that side of the marriage and here's this man who desires you, I'd feel very sexy. I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And how would she know what normal amounts of sex was and wasn't in a marriage? She had no idea. She had no idea. And so... Everything about Gary, she thought was normal. She felt so desired. And she told me that it really bothered her that she's five years older than Gary. And and she wondered if he would think of her as old, if he would be, in fact, attracted to her. And so his desire for sex every day validated and helped her insecurity about being five years older than her husband. Wow. That actually makes sense. I can see that. I can absolutely see that. I wanted to ask you, this is something I've read a lot, and I don't know if Judith had any insight into this, that growing up, the environment that serial killers are raised in, there's a lot of factors that can influence that development when these things occur in like a perfect storm to create a a serial killer. The story that you hear about all the time is that you know, Gary wet the bed until he was a young teen, and that his mother Mary would wash his genitals. And somewhere in there, I mean, I can't imagine washing a 13 year old's genitals, but it may have even been earlier than that. That that is what he developed an inappropriate sexual connection to his mother, which got twisted into something humiliating, embarrassing hateful and was directed at women later. Very simplistic, but I could not find view of Gary saying that. Did Judith say anything like that that might confirm that? It makes perfect sense to me, but it doesn't mean it's true. I agree with you that it has been reported, maybe even widely reported. It does show up here and there. And I had heard those reports and read things and seen things in documentaries myself. I was not able to go and find the original source of that information, but Judith did tell me some things that Gary told her. So yeah, I guess we can call that hearsay, but this is a biography. This is her story. It's her story. And so that's what I had to go with, her story as she remembered it. So yeah, Judith shared with me that that Gary told her And he didn't talk about it often. This was just kind of a rare thing that he did have bedwetting when he was a child. And yeah, that shows up on the list of what we see in serial killers. Oftentimes the bedwetting, um, what is the other one? Torturing animals and uh, starting fires, something like that. Yeah, the McDonald's triad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so there's been research on that. And I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. But then 
a lot of people have bedwetting as a child for various reasons, and they don't all go out on serial killers. No, not at all. Getting back to the source, so Judith told me some things that Gary told her that included he suffered from bedwetting, he hated it, it was embarrassing, humiliating. His mother would get enraged. When she found him wet, she would get him up, throw him in the bathtub, rip off the sheets and blankets, put them out to uh, to dry. Everyone knew what was going on and that she did touch his genitals and that it was just sort of awful. But I did see, I've watched hours and hours of when the detectives and the, the psychologist interviewed Gary when they had him tucked away in that secret location for a long time. I saw him say, and I heard him say, that he always viewed his mother as sexy and that he wondered what it would be like to have sex with her. But that's as far as it went. So I did hear and see him say that in one of those recordings when he was being intensely interviewed in that secret location after his arrest here in King County. Thank you, because I pride myself on being accurate. Mm-hmm. And just because I read it on the internet doesn't mean it's accurate. So I had to take the opportunity to ask you, you know, because strangely enough, you know, when you make requests like, hey, can I see the police file on something? And they're like, who are you? And I'm like, well, I'm Jill. I have this podcast. The answer is no. Darn it. They won't share the files. You know, darn. <laughs> but you, I thought, might have had that information and been able to get it. Thank you for confirming that. And now I feel better that if I read that on the Internet, it is true. And that's what she told me that Gary told her. So, you know, some will say that's hearsay, but, you know, as I mentioned earlier, people grow up with all different kinds of abuse and trauma, and we don't all go out and become serial killers. Oh, not at all. So I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, I grew up in church too. Is it good versus evil? Was Gary filled with with the evil spirit from the devil? Maybe. I can't go inside of him and confirm that. I also think about human beings. I think that we have, just as people, kind of a a basic understanding of an invisible line of demarcation that we know we dare not cross. We just sort of intuitively know this. But I think in nature, sometimes there's this wild drive or this wild invite for someone to cross over that line. And could that be what happened? And he crossed over that line and went, hey, nothing happened. I didn't get caught. That was really fun. I'm going to do it again. Or the third, so is he evil? Did he cross that line of demarcation that most of us wouldn't dream of? Or is Gary organically damaged? In other words, was he born? Is there some sort of damage, a disease that he just doesn't think like other people think? People ask me what what it is. And I say, I can't go inside of him and see those. But I wonder, I wonder about all three of those options. Yeah. I've seen the PET scans of the brains of psychopaths and their, the orbital prefrontal cortex, like behind the eyes is flat. It's just not firing. And that is one of those indicators that you may be a psychopath and have an organic brain that is basically contributing to that. But that's a psychopath, not necessarily a serial killer. Every serial killer is a psychopath, and certainly every psychopath, thank God, is not a serial killer. 
you know, it's a very rare crime, thank goodness. And we have gotten better with DNA and CT cameras everywhere. We've gotten a lot better at catching these guys before they rack up, you know, 48, 50, 70 murders. But it's that nature nurture. I think it's a combination. Dr. Adrian Rain is at the University of Pennsylvania, and he studies the violent brain and the differences between the normal brain and then the violent damaged brain. There's all kinds of differences they're uncovering. But the question that then arises, did my brain make me do it? Mm -hmm. I couldn't help myself. I've got a disease. I've got a mental disease. And the question still comes down to, do you know right from wrong? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. Even with your diseased brain, you know right from wrong. Then you have free will. And whether that's God, nature, however your philosophical spin on it is, you made a choice. That's the other thing. Gary, in his letters, you have some of the letters that he wrote to Judith. I went very lightly on this because people should read this book. (laughs) (laughs) They really should read this book. At one point, this is the other point I was screaming at him in my head. I don't scream aloud anymore. It scares my husband, but (laughs) screaming in my head that he's writing to Judith, maybe I'm evil. Why did God let me do this? He and I have have this conversation. I said, Gary, God did not let you do anything. You made choices. So I went off on a little rant. But ah, ah, there's the insensitivity chip. There's the, oh, it's not my fault. So I can see where these brain studies are going to go. And it's just a matter of time before it shows up in a trial. Yeah. It could be used as a legal defense. I don't know if it's happened yet. I don't think so. I mean, why not? Why wouldn't you go there and say, oh, I was born this way. I can't, I couldn't help it. If I'd gone to my serial killer counseling group. Yeah, my support group. Yeah, maybe we will have support groups like that in the future. Oh, isn't that frightening? Isn't it terrifying? Hi, I'm I'm Gary. I'm a serial killer. I I only killed two women last week. Yeah. That gives me the chill. Oh, my goodness. This has been very organic, but I want to ask you, did do you have anything else like I have to make sure I tell Jill this? Oh, yeah, I, I wanted to tell you about I know you read about it, but I, I'd like your followers to, especially the young ones, go check out the movie. And you and I might be old enough. We remember this, but but the younger people who are interested in this probably don't know about it. Go check out the movie. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest starring Jack Nicholson. Did you see that movie? Oh, yes. It shined a light on mental institutions where people were put away, uh, with, were institutionalized without their consent. And it, it really let us see, and we didn't know, I believe, until this movie came out, you know, how they treated mentally ill people. And, and this was in the 1960s. Judith was institutionalized in Western State Mental Hospital here in Washington mm-hmm. State. During her high school years, it was not her choice. She was put there against her will because she suffered from seizures, epilepsy. And this was in the 1960s. And at that time, there were very few choices, uh, very few options for treating brain seizures. And so what folks will see in that one flew over the cuckoo's nest is how patients were abused. They were given electric shock therapy, ice water immersion. They performed lobotomies. Insulin. They removed part of their brain. Some of them were chained to walls. 
And Judith and I, again, serendipity, we had this bizarre experience. One day I was driving her around and I said, let's go take some pictures of where you used to live, places you've been, because I wanted to put some pictures in the book. And she said, oh, I want to drive by Western State Hospital because I was there during my high school years. Okay. So I drove her there. And we parked, it was a very busy thoroughfare running in front of this institution, which has now been very downsized. Funding has been taken away. So it's just a shadow of what it used to be, but it's still there and it's still functioning. Mm -hmm. We stopped there and I said, well, would you like to get out? And how about if I take a picture of you standing in front of this mental hospital where you were living as a girl? Yeah, yeah. Take a picture of me. So she got out, cars are whizzing by. And I, I took a picture of her in front of the building and she turned and she bolted and she ran away from me like a toddler in a parking lot. She ran across the busy highway onto the lawn. I'm chasing after her. Jennifer, come back, come back. What are you doing? She ran away from me, went in the main entrance, went up to the desk. I finally caught up to her huffing and puffing and said, what are you doing? And she said, uh, I want to see the room that I used to be in. And, and I thought, oh, this is absurd. This is embarrassing. Oh, my she, God. She went up to the gal at the desk and said, hi, my name's Judith, and I used to live here when I was in high school, and I was in room number blah, blah, blah. Can I go see my old room? And the person was very professional and understanding, of course, and said, no, you know, that's not possible. We can't let you go see a room. And Judith talked and talked and talked with this person at the desk and was telling her story. And I'm like, come on, Judith, we need to go. This lady needs to get back to work. Let's go. Let's get out of here. And as I was standing there, I thought, oh, light bulb, medical records. They probably have her yes. medical records here. The only way they can read these medical records is to the patient. They have to have the patient's permission. And here so, she is. Here we are. So I walked up to the desk and I said, hey, excuse me. Uh, do you have a medical records department here? And would you go back to 1960, whatever it was? Oh, yes. Just turn here, go down the stairs, and, da, 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 and they can get those records for you. So I took Judith by the hand. We went down the stairs. And then I flipped from, oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. I have to get her out of here. What is she doing? She's reliving all of these memories. And these people are busy. They don't need to be hearing all of this. I chased her across the highway, chased her across the lawn, and suddenly it flipped. And I'm thinking, we could get her medical records. We're going to find information. <laughs> we went down to medical records. She filled out a form. We sat there and waited, and they handed over a stack of papers <gasps> with her entire chart. Like a couple inches? Well, maybe an inch. Maybe okay. an inch. And they handed me her entire chart. And I took it home and I read through it. And I said, Judith, do you know that you ran away multiple times? Do you remember the police coming and getting you and taking you back? Oh, yeah. But she was so heavily drugged, she didn't remember a lot of it. Sure. In her personal chart notes, they had the medications they were giving her and treatments. And I put just a very little bit of it in the book. But that was, again, one of those weird little... I didn't know she was going to take off and run across the highway and run inside. And, uh, I didn't know we were going to get her medical chart that day. And that department, the medical records, was open. 
It was open. That day. They may not have it manned with, with budget cuts and everything else. Yeah, The timing was perfect. That's a good point that we waited about a half an hour and here you go. And we walked out with her medical chart, a copy of it. And they, and they could find it and it wasn't in a box in the, another building or a warehouse or there hadn't been a fire or got wet. I mean, here it is intact. Oh, here you go. That is, it's another major story. Wow. That's incredible. We had all kinds of adventures like that. As we were going through the process of writing the book, another time, uh, this is just funny. Linda Bailey, the best friend, would go with me often when I would interview Judith and tape recorder. Linda might sit and hold her hand and comfort her as she's crying and remembering terrible things. And Linda said, hey, you know, she was from the South and she had this great accent. She said, well, you know, let's just get in the car and go get ourselves a coffee. Let's just take a little break. So, okay. So we all went out and got in her large four-door sedan. Linda was driving, Judith in the front. I was in the back by myself. So we're driving along. It's a summer day. Windows are down. All of a sudden, I felt something, a cold blob on the top of my foot. I was wearing flip-flops because it was summer. A very cold blob. I looked down at my foot. There was a frog on my foot. And I just just started screaming. Vivian alert. (laughs) Linda just pulls the car over, slams on the brakes. All the doors open. We all jump out. We're all three standing there jumping up and down screaming. They don't even know why I'm screaming. They're just screaming with me. (laughs) And then they're like, why are you screaming? (laughs) There was a frog on my foot. There was a frog on my foot. Ah! All three of them are screaming. Oh, my gosh. Then we started laughing, and we were just hugging each other. It was this wonderful release after the tension that we were experiencing. It's another serendipity. A frog jumped on my foot. You're in a car driving. Yes. And a frog gets in the car. Yes. It gets on your foot. Yes. And we end up on the side of the road, hugging each other, laughing and crying, and thinking that's just the funniest thing ever. Well, Linda custom ordered some coasters for me uh, to put on my table with little green frogs on them. And I I still have those. It was a release that we all needed. We were about to crack from the serious things that we were talking about in the interview back at Judah's house. So we had all kinds of little adventures like this that brought us close together as women, all three of us from different worlds. Linda Bailey has passed. She has passed away. Yes. I've ended up becoming a friend to Judith. Not like we go and hang out together all the time, but she knows I'm always here. I contact her on her birthday every year. And I've also become sort of a, uh, more like a big sister protector kind of person for her. I feel very protective of her. I read a book, but I feel protective of Judith. So I can imagine how you feel. Yes. Take that a million times compounded. I'll tell you this. When I, when they took me to meet her the first time, part of the reason she was hiding, keeping the drapes closed, changing her hair, afraid to go out to the mailbox, is high-level media people were scrambling to get an interview with her and sensationalized oh, yeah. She got the biggest flower arrangements I've ever seen in my life. One came from Oprah. One came from Diane Sawyer of ABC News with these lovely cards saying, 
so sorry for what you've been through. I would love to meet you. I'd love to do an exclusive interview. And that made uh, Judah feel sick. And oh, she yeah. Just, she just ignored all of that. No, she didn't sound like she was in any kind of shape for years to really talk about this. But she had you for that outlet. Thank God. She had you. She had Linda. You are really the heroes in this story. Really, I think, helped bring her back from the edge. She's in really critical shape there. She was. I commend you for that. I mean, this is something you didn't know. You stepped up, scooped her up. I'm glad you're still in touch with her. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also glad she doesn't need you like she did. That's a part of her healing. She has her church. Her faith is very important to her. She's always had such a green thumb. She's always had her yard work, gardening, her flowers. And every time I go to see her, she sends me home with a start of something from her yard. She has houseplants all throughout the house. Too many for me. But I think they give her comfort. And so I have things growing in my house and out in my flower beds that came from Judith. And I always look at them and think, oh, she gave me that. It is a testament to her healing that she can live independently and and that she is stronger. She is getting close to 80, which is hard for me to believe. So she is slowing down physically. She has some back pain, not doing as much outdoor yard work as she did before. You know, given all the trauma and heartbreak, and betrayal that she's had in her life, doing remarkably well. I'm so glad to hear that. Penny, thank you so much for doing this and, and writing the book, being such a good friend, still being her advocate. You, you've been so articulate in sharing insights and stories and serendipitous moments. I, I, I appreciate it so much. And I, I truly love your book. Thank you. And I appreciate your integrity and the way that you've approached this this whole uh, interview. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Murder Bookies. Episode 62, my interview with Penny Wood. Insights, serendipity, and support for a woman in desperate need. What a conversation. And such an important, unique book in true crime. I really urge you to read the book as I repeat myself all the time, but it is such a worthy read. And I cannot wait to get your comments at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. What's coming off my murder shelf next? Well, best-selling author Jerry Bledsoe wrote Death Sentence, the true story of Velma Barfield's life, crime, and punishments. When a North Carolina farmer, Stuart Taylor, died of a sudden illness, His 46-year-old fiancé, Velma Barfield, was overcome with grief. Taylor's family grieved with her until the autopsy revealed traces of arsenic poisoning. Turned over to authorities by her own son, Velma stunned her family with more revelations. This wasn't the first time she committed cold-blooded murder. A very different female serial killer book. So read with me, and I can't wait to tell you this story with my usual analysis. Thank you for listening. I see you as you hear me. And how about a five-star review? Hmm? The podcast has been exploding lately, so let's keep this momentum going. Take a few minutes to leave an awesome review. New warm weather designs are out on Spreadshop, so get your merch. Links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with my sources, photographs, show notes, our vegetable strata recipe, wine pairing, and always trust your gut murder bookies. 
written and produced by Jill, All Rights Reserved, music by Carl Hosena, and lyrics by Otto Harbach. <laughs>